0: And here we go on this Wednesday, October the 21st in the year of our Lord 2020. You're listening to Law and Gospel. I'm Pastor Tom Baker. And on Wednesdays, we've been examining C.F.W. Walther's lectures to seminary students that occurred in the 1880s. And we're on lecture number 27. 27th evening lecture, May the 8th, 1885. And the 26th evening lecture provided us with his thesis 15 of the 25 that he was talking about as to how at times pastors and laity confuse the distinctions between law and gospel. So thesis 15, you are not Rightly distinguishing law and gospel in the Word of God, if you turn the gospel into a preaching of repentance. And so, this is the second evening that he's talking about this. And he begins always with a little introduction. And he talks about that all humanity is involved with three estates. Now, a lot of times we just talk about two estates. That's the temporal realm and the spiritual realm. But there's also the thinking that you can divide those into three estates. The one is the church or preaching estate. The other is the estate of family and economic life. And the third is the political estate. It's kind of interesting, in the German language, the estate of teachers of public doctrine, that's bishops, preachers, and others, is Lehrstand. Those involved in business is Nerstand. And those appointed to defend the order and peace of society are in the Wehrstand. So, the German terms rhyme, which explains their use. And what CFW Walter is talking about is that the world has reserved the greatest scorn and hate for the estate of the church, even though it is the most glorious estate of them all. And there are seven reasons why it's a glorious estate. Number one, its activity is all of humankind. The theologian deals with people insofar as man has an immortal soul and is meant for eternal life. Number two, the churchly estate uses the most beautiful medium and instrument, namely the word of the living God. Number three, it has its most beneficial and glorious goal to help people in this present life and lead them to a life of eternal bliss. Number four, it has a wholesome occupation that satisfies the souls of its members and advances them in the way of salvation. Number five, its work yields the most precious result, the salvation of mankind. Number six, it has the most glorious promise of the cooperation of the Lord so that the work of the teacher of the church will never be entirely unsuccessful and in vain. And number seven, it has the promise of a most gracious reward which consists of glory in the world to come, that is unspeakably great, and a floor overflowing in abundance, that it goes beyond anything anybody could ask for or prayed for in this life. So he says that even the holy angels unquestionably envy every teacher of the gospel. Now, that's kind of putting a human kind of thing because the holy angels aren't envious of anything, but they recognize that what preachers do is the greatest office that can be held. And therefore, it's even more necessary for teachers and preachers to be extra faithful as they continue with their teaching. Because, as we've seen from the previous 14 principles C.F.W. Walter has enunciated, the principal task of a preacher, and remember he's talking to seminary students, is rightly to distinguish the word of truth that is, law and gospel. In other words, we will praise God when you see that by pure grace, he makes the preacher shine as brightly as a heaven and as the stars eternally. So, he is now going to go into some objections against this 15th thesis. And once more, it's that if you turn the gospel into a preaching of repentance, you've really messed up law and gospel. First of all, we reject the claim that scripture itself calls the gospel law. Now, some people misquote the scripture, Romans three twenty seven then what becomes of our boasting? Paul asks. It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. And then somebody after reading that says, see, even according to the apostle's own expression, the gospel is also a law. But that's a false conclusion. We've talked about this a number of times how hebrew and greek words often have more than one meaning and the word law is a good example it can mean the ten commandments it can mean the ceremonial law it can mean the moral law it can mean one of the three uses of the law it could mean natural law like the sun comes up in the morning etc so When we talk about the word law in this expression, we're really using the word law as a principle. What becomes of our boasting is excluded. By what kind of principle? By the principle of works? No, but by the principle of faith. In other words, we are saved through faith in the promises of the gospel and we cannot boast about our works as having saved us, because you can't even do a good work in God's eyes until after you totally are saved and have the faith given to you by the Holy Spirit. So, when the Jews self-righteously ask Christ, what must we do to be doing the works of God Remember Jesus' answer in John 6, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. You see, people keep thinking that when you hear about works of God, you're talking about obedience. But Christ uses their term works of God but with an entirely different meaning. He is saying works do not save a person. In fact, there is no need to do works in order to achieve some merit. Instead, rely solely on Christ the Redeemer and His grace. That is what saves. In other words, a person is declared righteous in the sight of God the same way Abraham was. That he believed the promises from God. So if you wish to understand Holy Scripture properly, you need to know the rules of rhetoric. What is C.FW. Walter talking about? Uh, we learned that at the seminary that there's different ways to interpret the Bible, and the one way is called the grammatical the historical grammatical way in which you take the words at face value in contrast to other words where you actually end up, how shall I put it, criticizing the Bible. And, and that, of course, is inappropriate to criticize the Bible. So what we have here, the gospel is called the ministration of righteousness. And that means that the pastor is talking about how a person becomes righteous, not by means of the law, but by means of the gospel. Now, sometimes you can get confusing because even Martin Luther talks about faith, as a return to the first commandment. So you would think, well, wait a minute, isn't he talking about therefore obedience? No, listen to the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. What does this mean? We should fear love and trust in God above all things. And that means that the gospel really means, in the German, a good message, glad tidings, good news, a good report, uh, of which men speak and sing cheerfully. In other places, Luther says that the gospel punishes humankind. What he means is that when the word gospel is used in certain passages, it may mean law. Remember, we talked about that last week. There's a wider use of the word gospel and a narrow use. The narrow use is always talking about the benefits we have received through faith in Jesus Christ. The wider use of the word gospel includes both law and gospel. So when we talk about that, it is important that we preach the whole gospel. That means we also preach the law and the narrow view of the gospel. Now, on the basis of Romans 10:16, there's another objection because it says they have not all obeyed the gospel. Some argue that since it's really the law that demands obedience, The gospel is not merely a message of joy, but an improved law. Well, that can be understood in the following way, that the gospel is not an improved law that we need to obey, as though when it says, have faith in Jesus, we can somehow arrange ourselves to have faith. Faith is not something we concoct. It is a gift from God. So in talking to the seminarians, C.F.W. Walther says, you need to proclaim the law forcefully. Uh, You should reverberate in the pulpit with thunder and lightning. But the moment you speak of the gospel... The law must be hushed. And reminds us remember when the law was being brought down from Mount Sinai? There was a barrier around Mount Sinai, and anybody who even touched the mountain would die, even animals. But there is no barrier around Golgotha, the mountain upon which Jesus died. Here, Everyone is allowed free access. So, when Luther describes the gospel, and it's very clear that it's found on Monday, Thursday, it's regarded as the last will and testament of Christ. The gospel is not a doctrine that teaches you how to make yourselves worthy in the sight of God. Rather, the gospel reveals what we are to receive from God so that we are worthy. So to the seminarians, the joyful message is the following. You are redeemed. You are reconciled to God. You have been declared righteous. You are blessed people. Salvation has been acquired for you also. What good, Walther asked, would it be if someone were to offer you hundreds of millions of dollars, and you would not think it worthwhile to extend your hand and take the money? You would still remain a beggar until your dying day. And untold numbers of people remain in their state of condemnation, despite the perfect redemption That Christ proclaims to them and offers. Now, CFW Walther then goes ahead and says something that I have been saying for years on Law and Gospel. Merely believing that the gospel is true is not faith that justifies a person. Because when you think of the gospel being true, you think of the History. Jesus died, he rose, he ascended. That's all true. No. What Luther says is that Christians must believe the statement of the gospel is true for themselves personally. The way I like asking this is. Are you saved if you believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead? The answer is no, not necessarily. That's only historic faith. What saves is a faith that says, he died on the cross for my sins. He rose from the dead for my justification. And therefore, there's no doubt that the law is important to be preached. We talk about this as the third use of the law, that after Christians come to faith, we ask God, what is your will for me? And therefore, the law is preached continually, but not as the foundation of our salvation, but the result of being saved. And C.F.W. Walter has this statement. I'm just going to quote it. You must be assured that the Lutheran church is distinct from all others by the fact that it preaches perfect redemption and therefore does not portray faith as a work, but merely as the receiving hand by which the sinner receives the gifts of God. This is so important that both word and sacrament be preached in this way in order that people come to a proper understanding of the Christian message. Now, remember when David killed Goliath. What did the children of Israel have to do? Nothing. Instead, they were able to make use of their freedom with Goliath dead. In the same way, we no longer need to be afraid of the law, sin, death, the devil, the curse of the law, and eternal damnation. These were our enemies, but they have been put to death by Jesus Christ. In fact, to continue to fear that we are not going to be saved because our works aren't good enough is really a reproach to Christ. If you believe that God is angry with you, well, you have an angry God. But if you believe he is compassionate, merciful, and gracious to you, then you have a kind God. This is really important. If one is familiar with the works and history of Christ as were the unbelieving Pharisees. This does not necessarily mean that you know the true gospel, nor do you embrace the knowledge that he has conquered sin, death, and the devil for you. Similarly, you may be familiar with the doctrine and commandments as recorded in the New Testament but not necessarily know the gospel. The gospel is this, that when you hear the voice that tells you that Christ is your own, that he is, has, does, and is able to do your salvation. One of the interesting points C.F.W. Walther works Good works are not necessary of themselves. What? What does he mean by that? He explained it. In God's accounting, they are not necessary at all for our salvation. They can't be the foundation of our salvation. But they are necessary once we are saved so that other people will see us as Christians exercising our faith to these wonderful, good works. So, the main point of this thesis is when the Bible talks about the gospel in the narrow sense, therefore, we need to make it very clear that this is the means of salvation in the narrow sense. And there are a number of reasons. For example, anytime the gospel is contrasted with the law, it's quite certain that the word gospel does not refer to the gospel in the wide sense, but in the narrow sense. As Ephesians 2 14 to 17 reads, For he is our peace who has made one of both. And has broken down the wall by abolishing through his flesh the enmity, namely the law set up as commandments. Or whenever the gospel is presented as a particular teaching of Christ or as a doctrine that proclaims Christ, that is also the narrow use of the gospel. Uh, a third way, to know you're talking about the narrow use, whenever poor sinners are the ones to whom the gospel is addressed. We don't address the law to a poor and frightened sinner. We address the good news of the gospel. Number four, whenever forgiveness of sins, righteousness, and salvation by grace are named, As the effects of the gospel, that's the narrow gospel. And the final one, when faith is correlated to the gospel, the reference to the gospel is in the narrow sense. Mark 1.15, repent and believe the gospel. So next week, we're going to have a little introduction To thesis number 16. We'll be taking a look at that from CFW Walther's Lectures. At this point, on tomorrow's Law and Gospel, we're going to be doing something very interesting. It's kind of almost going to be a question that Wes Reimnitz and I, Tom Baker, are asking our listeners. But you know, when people take the Lord's Supper unworthily, what does that mean? Does it mean that they are unbelievers? Does it mean they're going to hell? And one of the questions we're going to address is, when people take the Lord's Supper in a church that does not believe it's the body and blood of Christ, how are they considered unworthy? so that's going to be our discussion for tomorrow on Rumination Thursday with Russ Reimnitz. It came about because I'm an adult instruction class I'm teaching, had a wonderful question uh, from the student, and we were able to therefore talk about this, and I decided to expand it on Rumination Thursday, Law and Gospel. And then on open mic friday send me emails or letters where you might have questions that you want me to address since we're not in the studio yet and at that time open mic friday will address those questions you can always get a hold of me at law and gospel at law and gospel 101 top.com i'm tom baker Till then, God bless you.